Good morning, everybody. How y'all doing this morning? Happy New Year. It's going to be a great year. I just feel it. Feel it in my bones. I really encourage you to stop by and uh, talk with the team that's going to Cambodia. Um, that is a great work. I had the, the privilege of being on that team um, oh, eight, ten years ago or so, and, and uh, you will never in your life see worse poverty than this. Um, it is bottom of the bottom. These folks are uh, it's a third world country to start with, and they're, they don't even have access to any of the, the few things that are available uh, in, the, in that country. I mean, they're illegal immigrants there, and, and um, they have no resources. So they, these folks uh, living on the Mekong River, they live off of the river, they uh, wash their clothes in the river, they fish in the river, they go to the bathroom in the river, and it's, it's just deplorable. And so to be able to go and provide some medical help, and it makes an incredible difference. And so I encourage you to uh, be in solidarity with them, uh, keep them in prayer. Uh, if you can, uh, support them financially. They still have to buy some of the, the medical uh, stuff. And it's just a, a great... It's an honor to be uh, have folks like this that we can send out. And where they go, we go. They're a part of us. And uh, so praise God for that. On a very different note, if uh, you like to uh, party and dance and uh, things like that, next, uh, next Saturday night uh, at, at the dugout in Montemedi, the great band NDY will be there. <laughs> Rock and roll. Uh, and um, it's also a, an interesting evangelistic opportunity. There's several people now who are coming to Woodland Hills uh, because of uh, uh, we go in and take over these bars and play. And, uh, and, it, and you know what it does? It, it, it's just, it, it breaks down a lot of stereotypes people have about Christians when they can see Christians having a great time. And they see the band and the band's all Christian. And you got this preacher up there who's on the drums and he's going nuts. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a... That, that, that's a large part of evangelism right there. And then the folks ask questions like, what? Uh, and you get to explain some things. And so it's just, anyways, that'll be next Saturday night at the dugout. We are this morning going to be getting uh, back into the book of Colossians as we're slowly going through uh, this book, taking breaks to do series and stuff. But we're returning to Colossians. And there are some messages that we give uh, where we are aiming more at the heart and to motivate and inspire people. Then there's other messages where we just wrestle um, we, we in, a, in a cerebral way with theological issues. We're not afraid of taking on some tough uh, theology. And last week was very much of a heart sort of uh, message. Um, I, if you weren't here, I encourage you to download that message. Uh, it's entitled, A Letter to Henry. Um, and see, the, the, this tragic, the tragic death of this little boy, as we mentioned last week, uh, it just illustrates in a powerful, poignant, clear way the difference, the radical difference that your picture of God makes. Uh, we here believe that God looks like Jesus Christ. And there, therefore that he is not a God who is orchestrating tragedies like the death of little children. And that, that gives us a, a rare and unique opportunity to respond to tragedies like the death of this little boy differently than the way... Folks often respond with all the cliches they give and things like that. And so it was really a message that 
uh, highlighted a sort of a distinctive thing that we rally around here at Wilden Hills Church. I encourage you to listen to that if you haven't already. So that was our inspiration, heart sort of a message. Today is going to be theology time. So are you ready to do some thinking? Uh, get your thinking caps on. I encourage you to take notes. Uh, this is going to be intense. It's going to be kind of thick. Um, I'm going to cram a lot into the next 35 minutes here. Um, it's, it's a message that in some respects builds on what we talked about last week because it's going to address uh, our picture of God again. And as I said last week, if you're relatively new here to Wilden Hills Church, you might find that some of what I'm going to say, maybe even most of what I'm going to say, might confront some things that you believe. And uh, you may end up agreeing with me or not, and I'm okay with that. But I just encourage you to, to, to hear me out. Even if you are feeling an impulse to get mad and, and run, I encourage you just to hear. You might learn something. Can I just hang in there? Um, and for those who have been here for a while, uh, the, what I'm going to be sharing uh, is it's likely that you've heard some of this before, but I encourage you to nevertheless stay attentive because we're going to go deeper into a passage, a, a difficult passage, uh, than we've ever done before in a sermon context. Uh, we are going to chew on some meaty stuff here, so get ready. It's also something that I think, um, just judging from the first two services, uh, it, it might be something that really sets some people free. I, last hour, had a few people crying because they finally got free of something that's been troubling them for a long while, and maybe you'll find the same thing. The, the, the question that we're going to be wrestling with this morning is, what does it mean to be one of God's chosen people? And so the title of this message is, Does God Play Favorites? Does God Play Favorites? And so we'll pick up where we left off several months ago uh, in our study of the book of Colossians, uh, starting with verse 9 of chapter 3. And here Paul says, Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self and its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here, in this new self, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But Christ is all and is in all. Beautiful concept there. And we'll flesh some of this out in weeks to come. Therefore, as God's chosen people, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Hmm. Pray with me here. Abba Father, I thank you, God, that uh, you're a God who pours out your love, pours out your very self for your chosen people. But I pray, God, that we this morning could get a, a clear understanding of the beauty of that concept. And I pray, God, that you'll infuse this word with your authority and power to build your kingdom, because I'm very aware that human words alone can't do that. An eloquent speech can't do that. We have no confidence or trust in in, in giving a speech, God, our trust is in you. And so, God, we open our, I open myself up for you to just now flood in uh, to my voice and impregnate each word with your authority and open our minds. I pray for everybody in this auditorium and our, our, our wonderful parishioners and people uh, watching on television. And I pray, God, you open up their minds and hearts to receive your word deeply and to tear down strongholds and to root out lies and to install truth that our, our new self in Christ Jesus 
uh, could be manifested and that we would see you in all of your glorious beauty. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Okay, you're with me. You agree with that. So what Paul is doing here really is, is he's using a, uh, the imagery of changing clothes. Um, so he says the old self is like a garment. And we're supposed to take off that old self and then to clothe ourselves with the new self. Changing clothes here. And the old self had certain practices, habits, behaviors that it did. And the new self has certain practices and behaviors that it does. And so we're to put off those behaviors that were appropriate, or that at least were attended the old self, and we're to put on the behaviors, engage in the practices that are to characterize the new self. Now, what I want to address, and we'll be flushing some of that out in the weeks to come. What I want to do this morning is... is uh, Look at the foundation of this whole thing. The foundation for our new self is that, Paul says, we are, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, as God's chosen people, we're to put on this new self. For Paul, we don't put on a new self to try to become a better person. This isn't some kind of, Christianity is not some sort of self-help project. Uh, Rather, it's because of what is already true about us that we then try to manifest that truth. And what's already true about us Paul says is that we're God's chosen people. Now, what does that mean? That's the question this morning. What does that mean? Um, what does that concept entail? It goes back, as many of you know, to the Old Testament, where Israel was God's chosen people. And so we read over and over again passages like, like Deuteronomy 7, where the Lord says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Holy means consecrated, set apart. The Lord your God has chosen you. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, to be his people, his treasured possession. This idea of being a chosen people has bothered a lot of folks. doesn't rub well with Americans where all people are supposed to be created equal, right? Uh, here, it seems like God is playing favorites. Out of all the peoples on the earth, I choose you. Out of all the peoples of the earth, you are my treasured possession. Which seems to imply that not everyone is his treasured possession, just Israel. What is up with that? I've known a number of folks who've been rather afraid of this concept. It installs fear in them because part of their old identity is that they're not the kind of people that are ever chosen for anything. And so when you hear about something, you know, a God who just chooses people, uh, it, it pushes their fear buttons because, well, they don't see themselves as the kind of folks who are ever chosen for anything. I, I really hope that gym teachers today are smarter than they were when I was in 7th and 8th grade. But uh, man, I, I had a gym teacher who, you know, on sporting events, uh, they would, he would have the, the two best athletes. We used to call them jocks. Do they still call them that? Jocks? The two jocks. And they would uh, be the captains of the two teams. And then they would take turns choosing who would be on their team. And um, as you are getting down towards the bottom of the pecking order... Uh, you know, kids start to get afraid because you don't want to be the last one that no one really wants. I, I was lucky. I grew up kind of fast, so I was, I was better at sports than most kids. So I was usually chosen early, and sometimes I was even the captain of the team. I was a jock. But uh, I always felt bad for this kid. I'll call him Danny because he might hear this message, and I don't want to embarrass him. But uh, Danny was, he's a skinny, scrawny, weak, short, pimpled face, uncoordinated kid who wasn't good at anything. I mean, he, he just was, when it came to athletics, he was just a loser. And so no one chose him. No, no one wanted Danny. So you're going down, and you, more often than that, we'd end up with Danny. 
What a cruel way to choose teams. Just cruel. It's like survival of the fittest incarnated, you know. Um, and uh, then the people would argue about who, who has to take Danny. You know, no, we don't want Danny. You can have him. Oh, no, we don't want Danny. You take him. Ah, oh, he, can't, he can't swing a bat for Danny. No, you take him. And, and then the, everyone starts laughing, you know. And, and even the gym teacher sometimes laughed. Ugh. Uh, if you're a gym teacher, please never do that. Um, and even Danny would sometimes laugh because he wants to pretend like it doesn't matter. But he, I could tell he was hurt. I mean, it's hurt. It hurts not to be chosen. And some of us are Danny's. We were the ones who are passed over. We're not picked for anything. We're not chosen to be part of the popular club. You're not chosen to go to the parties. You're not chosen to be on the sports team. You're not chosen to go on dates, go to prom. No, you're always the one who's passed over. And so when you hear this idea that God maybe is a, a chooses something like that, uh, well, then, then it can stall fear in you. So the question is, is, does God choose his chosen people something like the way that this gym teacher had the jocks choose their teams? Now, there is, as a matter of fact, uh, there have been many theologians throughout history and many yet today who would argue that, in fact, that is quite a bit like how God chooses his chosen people. Uh, in this view, God, before the foundation of the world, decided who his favorites were. For the foundation of the world, before anything ever existed, he just decided that this person and that person is going to go to heaven and this person and that person is going to go to hell. Here's my treasured possession. The rest of you go to hell. <laughs> before the foundation of the world, before anything ever existed. I, I mentioned this a little bit last week, and uh, one person at the end of the service thought I was exaggerating. Uh, came up and said, you must be caricaturing the position, because no one would literally believe that everything's predestined, including who goes to heaven and hell. And I, I assure you, I'm not exaggerating. And to prove that, I, we're going to now go... Get it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. I'm going to give you several quotes from John Calvin. Uh, this view is usually associated with John Calvin. Um, though he wasn't the originator of this view, the first one in church history to ever believe this was uh, St. Augustine in the 5th century. Uh, but John Calvin is one of the folks who are... Is, he, he said it more clearly uh, than Augustine did and, and in a period of history where it had more influence today anyways than Augustine. And so it's usually associated with the thought of John Calvin. So here's several quotes. And by the way, I like a lot of John Calvin. There's a lot of wisdom in Institutes of the Christian Religion and some of his commentaries are, are really good. This part, however, not so much. Here's what he says. We call predestination God's eternal decree by which he compacted with himself that he, what he willed to become of each and every person. For all are not created in equal condition. Rather, eternal life is foreordained for some, eternal damnation for others. Foreordained. And then later on he says, God once established by his eternal and unchangeable plan those whom he long before determined once for all to receive into salvation and those whom, on the other hand, he would devote to destruction. Before anyone's ever born, the outcome is settled. It's foreordained as part of his eternal decree, his unchanging and invariant eternal immutable plan. That so-and-so will be enjoying eternal bliss, and so-and-so will be suffering eternal torment. So there you have it. It's quite a bit like gym class. It's just that instead of being chosen for a baseball team, you're, what's being decided is whether you're going to enjoy eternal bliss or eternal pain. And for John Calvin and the majority of folks uh, uh, since, 
that hell is, is, is nightmare suffering. Okay? It's, it, you, you, it never ends. You're consciously suffering throughout all eternity. Now, John Calvin isn't just making this up. Um, he is, he believes basing this on the Bible. Uh, and there are, in fact, some verses that can be interpreted in ways that support this idea that God from the foundation of the world decides who his favorites are and the rest he, he, he ordains uh, to suffer eternal conscious torment. Um, and what I want to do with the rest of this message is look at one of those passages. It's the most important of the passages. Uh, it's the one that is most frequently appealed to. It is, I believe, one of the most mis- misinterpreted passages in the whole Bible. And it is... Certainly the, the passage that has installed more terror in the hearts of people than any other verse of the Bible. It is Romans 9. And so I want to talk about Romans 9. Uh, in this passage, Paul is addressing the question of how, how it can be that uh, the Messiah comes, Jesus Christ, and yet the majority of the people who are supposed to be God's chosen people, which are the Jews, they aren't believing in him. If they're God's chosen people, how is it that they're not accepting Jesus as the Messiah? And in the course of wrestling with this issue, here's what Paul says. This is the, the main section of Scripture that provides a foundation for this idea that God ordains who will be saved and who will be damned from the foundation of the world. He says, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. It's kind of like, meeny, 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 He just does it. Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for, di- for the disposal of refuse? Um, antimia is, is the, the, the word here, and, and it refers to a, uh, a vessel, some kind of object that you would um, put waste in, like a waste paper basket or a toilet. So God makes out of one lump of clay, he just decides to make some vessels that would be for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. Refuse. Crap. What if God, he says, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared ahead of time for destruction? And what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Okay, it can look like Paul is saying this, though no one interpreted it this way until Augustine. Uh, but it can look like Paul is saying this, that God, from the foundation of the world, before anything ever existed, he had one lump of clay. It's an analogy, of course, but here's, here's, here's what the analogy kind of can look like on this interpretation. This is, I'll call this Calvin's interpretation, even though it originated with Augustine and a lot of people since uh, believe it. Um, so God, what if God, out of one lump of clay, decided to prepare, uh, and I am not by any means a sculptor, just so you, as though that wasn't obvious. Okay, so one lump of clay, he makes some vessels, some pottery that is going to be used uh, for disposal of refuse. Uh, he makes some that are going to be the objects of his wrath. He's going to pour his wrath on them. He makes them for that purpose. And um, he does that in order that he might show uh, his mercy to the vessels prepared to receive mercy. 
So God, out of one lump of clay, what if God, out of one lump of clay, makes some vessels? He, he, Paul says he, he uh, uh, bears with great patience objects made for his wrath, which is odd because if he's making the objects for his wrath, why does he need patience? But let's let that one go. So here's the objects of wrath. And uh, in uh, Augustine and, and Calvin refer to the objects of wrath as the reprobate. These are the folks that are fashioned such that they will not hear the gospel or will not believe the gospel when they hear it. They're going to be lost um, and suffer eternal torment. And the objects of mercy are those who will hear the gospel and will believe the gospel. These are the elect. This is the chosen people. And so what if God, uh, out of the one lump of clay, uh, wants to show forth his ferocious wrath on the objects that he made for the purpose of showing forth his wrath? And so his wrath is poured out. He judges them, and he, there's an eternal judgment. There's wrath. He's, he's mad, is furious at the objects of wrath, even though he's the one who made them to be objects of wrath. And what if he did this uh, in this interpretation? This is what Paul seems to be saying. So that he might show forth the riches of his mercy on the objects that are, are made uh, for mercy. The contrast here is all important because what he doesn't do to one, uh, he does to the other. So he shows forth his wrath on the objects made for wrath in order to magnify all the more his mercy on the objects of they made for mercy. So it's, it's like God is saying, boom! Oops, sorry. Um, <laughs> I just flip out for Jesus. And so, so then God says, I show forth my wrath now, aren't you glad I didn't do that to you? Uh, glorify me. Because I could do it to you. I'm the potter, you're the clay, I can do whatever I want. Uh, and so I show my wrath here. Aren't you glad I showed mercy on you? And they go, thank you, thank you. And so that's, that, that's the kind of image that you get from this reading of Paul in Romans 9. And you can see how people come to that conclusion because, well, it looks like uh, that's what Paul is saying. Or can look like that. So the question is, is this view right? Is this view right? Now, it's going to shock some of you to hear this, but I, I used to believe this. I was a Calvinist for a couple of years. While in grad school, I was reading a whole lot of Jonathan Edwards, who's an 18th century Calvinist, and I was reading a, a lot of Karl Barth, uh, who's a 20th century Calvinist, though he doesn't quite hold that view. Um, and, and this is what I believed, although at the time, and it's still my, what I'm inclined to believe, I didn't think, I, I thought hell was uh, annihilation, that it, God just withdraws holding people in existence. So I didn't have to deal with the eternal suffering part of it, but um, it still was my basic paradigm uh, for understanding how things work. And the reason was, well, primarily Romans 9. I remember when I first uh, shared my new theology with Shelly, uh, my wonderful wife, um, she was horrified. She was just, uh, she responded by, I mean, she, we really had a fight. It was bad. Yes, we have fights now and then. Uh, and she said, what kind of a God is that? Yuck! I remember saying that right in our kitchen. Yuck! What kind of a God is that? And I said, sorry, but that's what the text says. I, 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 how, how would you interpret this text? And she says, I don't know, you're the scholar. But whatever it means, it can't mean that. It can't mean that. And if that is what Paul means, well, then I'd rather believe that Paul is wrong than to think that God actually looks like that. And then I'm beginning to wonder if my wife is maybe not one of the elect. (laughs) (laughs) Jezebel's spirit. (laughs) Uh, I tell you. You see, but see, here's the thing. I, I, I I was actually, I agreed with her sentiment. Um, 
even when I believed this view, this interpretation of Romans 9, this understanding of what it is to be God's chosen people, even when I believed it, I never saw the beauty of it. I mean, I hung out with people, and I've, I've known a lot of people who um, would say things like, oh, it, it, this is, God is so beautiful, God is so glorious, God is so merciful, because, and they have a joy about this. God chose me. He elected me. We're one of the, the, the chosen, and he didn't need to choose anybody. We all deserve to die, but he chose us by sheer grace. And, and uh, uh, for the foundation of the world, he predestined us to believe, and, and he's so perfect and, and just and loving and wonderful. And even when I believed this interpretation of Romans 9, I never quite understood that. I I didn't think it was a beautiful picture of God. I just didn't see that I had any alternative. I shared Shelley's sentiment, but um, I I thought this is what you just got to put up and shut up because this is... And maybe that just means that I'm not one of the elect, you know. Maybe I was predestined not to understand it. You either see it or you don't, someone told me. Either you see the beauty of this or you don't. And I don't. Um, So there you go. I didn't... I didn't win in the predestination lottery. But see, I, I, when I believed this, I, I couldn't get out of my head this image. Here's the image that I would wrestle with. Um, I, 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 I would picture myself at this table with all these other people. We are the elect. And, and salvation is a scrumptious dinner that's been prepared for us. All the food we could ever want is just scrumptious. And this is a merry supper of the Lamb, right? And so we're sitting around enjoying this wonderful meal and, and celebrating the beauty of our host, who is Jesus. But in this image, I, I'm in a glass house. And just outside the walls of this glass house are multitudes of starving people, tormented. These are the non-elect, the reprobate. And uh, I recognize some of these folks outside the house. There's my wonderful wife, my lovely wife. She didn't make it. She didn't make it. And there's my, my, my wonderful children, you know, and there's some beloved friends. Because in this view, just because you're elect doesn't mean that your child's elect. That newborn baby that you think is so delightful and beautiful, well, that baby maybe is destined from the foundation of the world to glorify God by suffering throughout eternity. And, and, and there's no guarantee that spouse, your spouse, maybe not in. Your best friend perhaps didn't make it. And so in this image that I would have, I, I, I would ask Jesus, is it okay we share some of our wonderful food with these starving people? And Jesus says, no, no, you can't do that. And then I ask, well, why? Is it, is it because there's not enough to go around? And, and in this image I have, Jesus would respond by saying, oh, no, there's plenty of food. We could feed everybody a million times over throughout eternity if we wanted to, but uh, we don't want to. Uh, we rather just want you to enjoy it, and you glorify us by enjoying this dinner, and they glorify us by showing forth our wrath uh, for being the way that we made them to be. And so they're going to starve. Don't share your food. And then I would say, well, do, do we deserve it? More than them, or did they deserve it less than us? And the response in this image that I would wrestle with, Jesus would say, oh, no, 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 no. They don't deserve it any less than you. Uh, You're no better than them. They're no worse than you. Out of one lump of clay, I just decided to make some vessels to enjoy the scrumptious dinner throughout eternity and some vessels to starve throughout eternity. And that's my prerogative because I'm the potter, you're the clay. Deal with it. And, And so... I found I just had trouble enjoying this scrumptious dinner. When when, when I, I happen to I happen to make the cut and they didn't, and people can say, "Well, we all deserved uh, to starve," and so he didn't have to choose any. The fact that he chose some is is already glorious. Well, yeah, okay, but it's hard to understand how we all deserve this 
when he's the one who made us this way. I, I, I never could, could get this. I, I had trouble enjoying being on the winning team when the Dannys of the world are starving. Now, see, here's my conviction is this. I, I, I get how people could arrive at this view interpreting Scripture. I, there's a plausible case, not really plausible, but there is a case that, that can be made from Scripture, Romans 9 being the chief text, to arrive at that. I get that. I don't get how anyone can genuinely say this picture of God is altogether lovely, altogether beautiful, altogether just. A God who punishes people eternally for being the way he made them to be. He ordained them that way. And he could have just as easily ordained everyone to be uh, in, in heaven. You can say, a fear might motivate you to say that the God who punishes people for being the way he made them is altogether lovely, perfectly loving, perfectly just, perfectly glorious. You'll say that. But I honestly, unless you're a sociopath, I don't see how you can actually mean it. And, and I, 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 the people who say it, I think, are, are very sincere people, lovely people, sincere people, and they're just trying to obey. That's where I was. They're trying to obey. I got that. But you, you don't, if you're a morally healthy person, you can't see this as beautiful. You can't see this as altogether lovely, altogether just. You can say it. Yes, God is justified for punishing them for being the way he made them to be. You can say it, and you're trying to be obedient in doing that, but you don't actually see this. You're just saying this. If, if, unless you're, in fact, if you're honest with yourself, and I, for one, think that God wants us to be honest uh, with him and with, with each other. If we're honest, then unless you're a sociopath, then every moral fiber in your being would see a God who punishes people for being the way that he made them to be as, as evil. Honestly, if you had a child and, and you came downstairs and you see little Johnny making figures, clay figures, and then he's pouncing on them for being the way that he made them to be, genuinely angry, like, ah, I will punish you forever for being the way that he made him to be. I think you'd bring little Johnny to a therapist pretty quick. <laughs> Wouldn't you? Honestly, it, it, there's something off here. And if you, have, if you have trouble believing that, then remember that the one who is made for destruction, eternal torment, might be your precious newborn baby. Uh, and you are supposed to see the God who created, brought your little baby into the world for the purpose of displaying his wrath and, and, and eternally tormenting your baby. You're supposed to say that th- that God is perfectly loving, perfectly good, perfectly just, perfectly glorious. And the reason why that God created your little baby to suffer eternally is so that you might appreciate God's mercy on you for not doing the same thing all the more. The contrast is all important. Um, you might, to save your own skin from having that fate, you might agree and say, yes, God, you are perfectly loving, just, and glorious for damning my little baby uh, so that I would appreciate that you didn't do that to me. But you don't see that. Can we be honest? You don't see that as perfectly loving, just, and glorious. And the real kicker, this is what really got me, is that I had to admit I don't see this as loving and just and glorious. I, I, it strikes me as evil. And, and, and yet it's, the creator is the one who gave us our moral intuitions. And our moral intuitions can't see this as, as loving, just, and, and glorious. And yet we're supposed to say that it's loving, just, and glorious. And if we don't, well, then we might be the one, one of the ones who are squished. So our, we're being dangled over the flames on, on the condition that we say what we really don't see. And that strikes me as a sick joke, which makes this picture of God 
all the more evil. I'm going to be honest with you here. And this would strike some people as just being a confession that I'm not one of the elect, but I'm just trying to be honest. See, so I, I believe Shelley was right. I, I think Shelley was right in following her moral intuition and saying, yick. Um, whenever we come up with a, a, an interpretation of a passage where we find an evil picture of God, or at least a God who's less beautiful than the God who's revealed in Christ, I, that ought to be an indication to us that maybe our interpretation's wrong. We ought to keep on searching. And I think it was my continual discomfort with this view. Even though I believed it, on the authority of Scripture, I thought so, that, that's what it was teaching, but it, my discomfort with it led me to keep on searching and, 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 and investigating. And that is what I think eventually led me to come up with a, uh, an understanding of this passage that's very different than, than the one that Calvin has. And that's what I want to offer you right now. Um, I, I'm going to give you a different way of looking at this passage. I, I have a whole chapter on this in my book, Is God to Blame? And an even longer chapter in my book, uh, Satan and the Problem of Evil. So if you want to go really deep into this, I encourage you to check out those sources. What I'm going to give now is just the tip of the iceberg. But hopefully it will be, be enough to help us reframe what Romans 9 is talking about. Four things here. Um, four points to make very quickly. <laughs> We're going to go five over. We're going to go five over. I can tell it right now. Uh, so, okay, so number one, this interpretation of Romans 9 presupposes a picture of God who doesn't look like Jesus Christ. We always say here, and I, I, it's our, one of our foundational convictions, that to know what God looks like, we have to look at Jesus Christ. The Son alone, as I said last week, Hebrews 1.3, the sun alone is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's being. Uh, the sun is the glory of the glory. When God shines, it looks like the sun, S-O-N. And uh, uh, he is the exact imprint, the incarnation of what God looks like, exactly what God looks like, down to God's very being, his hypostasis, his essence. God, all the way down to the core of his being, looks like Jesus Christ, dying on the cross. And so the cross reveals a God of love. That's why John says, God is love. Love is his being. It's not just the verb he does, it's his nature. God is love. And then John, uh, in, in his epistle, defines love by pointing us to the cross. Here's how we know what love is. Uh, Jesus Christ gave his life for us, so also we should give our life for one another. And so God, to his very essence, this is teaching us, his very essence is cross-like love, Calvary love, self-sacrificial love. That's his eternal nature. And so it would contradict God to ever act in ways that are contrary to that self-sacrificial love. If there's one person that God didn't act that way towards, God would be contradicting his very essence, his very nature. And so... This is a, a portrait of God, I submit to you, that is absolutely antithetical to, the opposite of a God who plays favorites. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo, before the foundation of the world. That's why the scripture tells us that Jesus died not just for our own sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Praise God. The whole world. It wasn't just for us. And um, we find a lot of scriptures that tell, teach us things like, like, like 2 Peter, where it says that God's not willing that any should perish. He doesn't fashion people for the purposes of having them go to hell. He doesn't want any to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. And so Jesus gives us a picture of God who is not showing particularity or favoritism towards any. He's a God who loves all, a God who gives his life for all, a God who chooses all, a God who pours himself out for all, a God who says, whoever is, whosoever is hungry, come and eat. Whoever is thirsty, come and drink. A God who sets the table and says, Ali, Ali, in free to everybody. You want food? Here it is. Uh, this is a God who, who uh, uh, 
loves every individual as though they were the only individual he ever created. And so you Dannys of the world, you just got to know God chooses you. You got to see God saying to you, I choose you. You are my beloved. You, you are, I would do anything to spend eternity with you. Yes. You are, you are included. It may be that no one ever chose you for anything. You weren't chosen for prom or for dates or for sports teams or for a job application. You were passed over by everybody, but you got to know God doesn't pass over you. He will never pass over you. He dies out of love for you. Uh, he says, I choose you. And it doesn't matter what you've done. Don't let the adversary get in there and screw you up on that basis. I don't care. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what sins you've committed, what blasphemies you've uttered. I don't care who you've murdered. If you'll simply accept it, as we sang earlier, if if you'll accept the love, then you are embraced by the love and you are one of God's chosen people. Praise God. Amen. In fact, Paul says, Paul says this at one point. He says, as all died in Adam, so all are alive in Christ. Look at that. Now, this, this is, this is God defining reality here. He says, Jesus' death is for all. He's got an embrace around everybody. Now, he won't coerce you into the kingdom because then it wouldn't be love. But, so you can reject this if you want. You can reject reality if you want. And that brings destruction on yourself. Uh, but you got to know that the default here is that God says you are in. You are in. I choose all. He, he chooses Christ and he puts all in Christ so he chooses all. And that includes the Dannys of this world. If you'll just accept it and not reject it. So the first point is that this doesn't re- give us a picture that looks like Jesus. That tells us that something's wrong with that interpretation. Secondly, the passage, this passage isn't talking about individual salvation or damnation. It's always important when you're reading a, a passage uh, to ask, what is the passage talking about? What's the subject matter of this passage? And don't try to make the passage answer questions that the passage isn't trying to answer. So Paul gives us the theme of Romans 9 in verse 6. He says, here's what this passage is about. It is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. This passage isn't talking about individual salvation and damnation. It's asking the question, has God's word failed? Has God's covenantal promise to Israel failed? That's the issue that Paul's wrestling with. You see... In Paul's day, most of the Jews of the time believed that they were God's chosen people because A, they were Jews, and because B, they obeyed the law. That's what makes you a chosen person of God. Your nationality and your works. So Paul comes along and he's preaching this new gospel. And he's saying that anybody who accepts Jesus, has faith in Jesus, uh, is God's chosen people. And so the Jews, when they hear this, they say, wait, 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 wait. If that's true... Then God lied to us when God said we were his chosen people because of our nationality and because of our works. You see? If what you're saying is true, then God broke his promise to us. And Paul's response to that is to say this. No, 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 no. wait, you're, you're, you're misunderstanding because God is, is chosen. It's never been about your nationality or your works. It's always been about faith. The true descendants of Abraham are not the physical descendants. It's those who believe like Abraham. That's what he's talking about in Galatians and Romans 4 and all over the place. And so that's why he says, not all descendants of Israel are Israel. Not all the physical descendants are, are, are the true Israel, because the true Israel consists of all those who simply have faith. And so the point of this passage is not what individuals are saved or lost. The point of the passage is, what kind of people does God choose as his chosen people? And the answer that Paul gives is, all who believe. 
uh, has nothing to do with your nationality or your works. Which leads to my third point. The conclusion of Romans 9 points in a different direction from Calvin's interpretation. Whenever reading scripture, it's so important that you look for, especially difficult scripture that's hard to understand, look for any point where the author might have summarized his own thought, his argument. And if your interpretation of a passage disagrees with the author's own summary, that's a very good indication that you've misunderstood the passage. So Paul, fortunately, gives us a summary of his whole argument in Romans 9. It starts in verse 30. Here's what he says. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not obtained their goal. Why not? Well, because they pursued it, not by faith, but as if it were by works. Notice this, folks. When Paul summarizes his own thought, if Calvin was right, then when Paul summarizes his thought, he should have said this. What shall we say then? Well, here's what we say. God can harden whoever wants to harden, has mercy on whom he wants to harden, have mercy, uh, and, and that's just the way it is. People believe if they've been elected, and they don't believe if they weren't elected. But that's not what Paul says. What Paul does in his own summary is he points to the different decisions that the Gentiles have made and that the Jews as a whole have made. He points to people's free choices. The Gentiles who didn't try to pursue their own righteousness, but instead chose to simply have faith, well, they're the ones who who, who are made righteous, whereas those who pursued righteousness on their own based on the law, they find themselves on the outside. But that's about the free decisions of people. And this is why in Romans 10 and in Romans 11, the two chapters following Romans 9, Paul is emphatic on appealing to people's free choices. So, for example, he says in, in Romans 11, look at this. He says, they, referring to the Jews, the Jewish people of his time, they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. And then three verses later, he says, if they do not persist in unbelief, referring to the Jewish people, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. It's not that God hardened the Jewish people so they wouldn't believe. It's that they didn't believe, and therefore God responded to their choice by hardening them. Uh, God isn't unilaterally hardening some and having mercy on others. He's responding to people's free decisions. And all who choose to have faith receive mercy and are fashioned to be God's chosen people. And all who say no, but instead trust their own nationalism and their own works, they're the ones who are being, being hardened. Though the God of unfathomable love is still hoping, even when he hardens them, he's hoping that they'll turn around and come back to him. That's why Paul says that God wants to graft them in again. Does that look like a God who's unilaterally fashioning things? I, I, I'll graft you in again? If he's doing it all, well, there's, there's no again. No, it's just a unilateral carrying out of his, his decrees. Which leads to my fourth point. Listen to this now. This interpretation, I submit to you, hear me out on this, completely misunderstands the powder clay analogy. Whenever you're reading the New Testament and they refer to the Old Testament, whether it's an analogy or a verse, it's so important you go back and look at the original context of that verse in the Old Testament. Because the New Testament authors, and especially Paul, uh, they assume their audience is familiar with the Old Testament. Uh, we today aren't. So we got to go back and check on this. But you need to look at the original source. And the only verse, only passage in the Old Testament that deals with the potter clay analogy and shows what it means is Jeremiah 18. Now in Jeremiah 18, here's what you find. Uh, God had made a, a, an announcement 
a prophecy that he was going to judge Israel because of their, 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 their apathy towards the poor and their mistreatment of foreigners. He was going to judge Israel. And then a lot of the Jews were saying, oh, we're gone. We're doomed. And so God says, no, don't say that. And so he has Jeremiah go to the potter's house. Here's what it says. He takes Jeremiah to this potter's house and he says, so I went down to the potter's house and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter decided to form it into another pot, a different kind of pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. And then the word of the Lord came to me and he said, can I not do with you, house of Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, house of Israel. The potter clay analogy, folks, it's not about the potter's control of the clay. Making the... Clay behave however he wants. It's rather about the potter's ability and willingness to change his plans about what he wants to do with this clay, depending on how the clay behaves. The point is the potter's flexibility. That's why the, the Lord immediately goes on. Next verse in Jeremiah 18, and he says, So, here's the deal. Just because I said a judgment's coming doesn't mean a judgment's coming. Uh, if I say that a judgment's coming, if the if that nation will choose to turn from its wickedness, then I'll choose to turn from my planned judgment of it. Instead, I'll bring a blessing. But if ever I prophesy a blessing's coming on people and they turn from the righteousness and get wicked, well, then I'll choose to change my plan to bless it and instead I'll bring a judgment. I'm the potter and you're the clay and therefore I have the right to change my mind whenever I want to. I have the right to respond to the clay uh, however I I see fit. The point of the potter clay analogy, it's not about God's unilateral unilateral control of the clay. It's rather the exact opposite of that. It's about God's merciful flexibility. How it's not all decreed and settled. Just because I say a blessing is coming doesn't mean it's coming. Because if you change, I'll change. And just because I say a judgment's coming doesn't mean it's judgment's coming. Because if you change, I'll change. It's about God's merciful flexibility in responding to whether the clay cooperates with him or not. And so God, God says, my plan is to save all who have faith. The Gentiles accept that plan, so God responds to them by having mercy on them, and he starts to fashion them to be a people who are fit for his eternal kingdom. And God says, my plan is to save all who have faith, but the Jews... Most of them had, in Paul's day reject that plan because they trust in their own nationality and works. And therefore, God says, I have to fashion you in a way that's appropriate for that. I fashion you for judgment. But even as he does that, he's hoping, he's doing it with a redemptive heart, hoping that they'll turn around so we can graft them in again. That's why he says, if Jews do not persist in their unbelief, God will graft them in, graft them in again. And so, folks, as this potter clay analogy is applied to Romans 9, it means the exact opposite of what Calvin thought it meant. We don't get a picture of God here unilaterally, this horrific picture of God fashioning some for destruction and punishing them for being the way he made them and fashioning others to be saved. Rather, what we get in Romans 9 is a God who who wisely responds to people's choices, all the while hoping that all will turn to him because he wants all to be part of his chosen people. That's the point of Romans 9. Amen. I'm sorry, I... Amen. I pray as we close here that we can collapse. Well, I pray the Holy Spirit, especially for the Dannys of this world who worry about this. Uh, you might not be one of the elect. Maybe you didn't win the lottery before the foundation of the world. I pray that you know, perfect love casts out all fear. I pray that 
You can perish any thought, any suspicion that God might actually be this, 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 what I honestly have to, can only see as an evil, c- controlling God who punishes people for being the way He made them. I pray, you can just root that out and instead uh, focus your eyes on the cross where God has told us what He thinks about you and every other person on the planet that He's ever created. And I pray that we can see that, that the God revealed in Christ and the God who was revealed in Romans 9, if you're, if you're reading it right, is a God who chooses all and therefore chooses you. But he doesn't just choose you as one of the many. He chooses you as though you were the only child he ever created. And I pray we can see that. I sometimes envision Jesus coming to me, and I, I just see his face. We're on a mountaintop or in a field or someplace, and I see Jesus saying to me, eye to eye, Greg, I choose you. And it's got to be personal. I pray, because my heart was made for this. I, he says, I choose you. You are my beloved. You are my child. I would do and have done everything to spend eternity with you. And see, so my heart was made to hear that. And your heart was made to hear that. And every person's heart was made to hear that. That is life for us. And it's as we receive that perfect love uh, and make it our identity and make it the source of our security and significance, that is what frees us to live a radical kingdom life, this reckless, generous kingdom life, because all of our fullness comes from God's word to us, that we are his chosen people. He chooses you. He chooses you. No ifs, ands, buts, or exceptions. He chooses you, just accept it. Become pliable, pliable clay in his hands. Surrender your life to him, become pliable clay in his hands, and then he begins that beautiful work of fashioning you into the likeness of Christ. He fashions you to be a -a one-of-a-kind reflection of his glory throughout eternity. He fashions you to be a kingdom person. Just let him do it. Let him do it. All right. I'm going to close in prayer. And as I do, I'd like to ask the prayer team to come up here. And if you are here and have any need whatsoever, I encourage you to pray with these folks. Especially, especially, but not only, but if you're one of those who has been living in fear, maybe on the basis of this verse or some other verse, uh, I pray that, that join these folks in prayer to get that rooted out. Get that rooted out. The beauty of your, your love for God and the beauty of your life will never outrun the beauty of your picture of God. All right? Get that lie out of there and get truth installed in it. Abba, Father, you are beautiful. You are glorious. Uh, God, you are, you are perfect love. You are uh, perfect goodness. You are perfect justice. You are perfectly glorious. You are the God who is revealed on Calvary when you gave your life for all. I thank you for that, God. I thank you for shining all your beauty on us. I pray, Lord God, that we would uh, embrace that identity and be your chosen people and think like your chosen people and act like your chosen people and love like your chosen people and dance like your chosen people and celebrate like your chosen people because we are your chosen people. May we hear that voice. I choose you. Every one of us, Lord, help us to hear that voice individually with our name on it. I choose you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and love on the world. Amen.